Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 491. I dare you. This episode of Craftlit is brought to you by its listeners. Many thanks and much gratefulness to all of the listeners who have gone over to patreon.com slash craftlet and pledged their support to the show. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Well, hello. How are you? I am well. Things are cooking along here quite nicely. Thing one is finishing his second week of his internship in New York City, which has been, you know, a thing. So he's been away a lot, which is hard, but I think he's having a great time. He's working at a design branding firm, so he's he's getting a, a taste of what it's like to get up and go to work and be at work all day and actually do work, and so far he's doing a pretty good job, so oh, it's very stressful, but but he's having a great time, so that's the important part. When we took him up to New York for his first week, you may have seen I posted, I think, a couple of pictures from the Brooklyn Museum of Art, and I'm going to link out to several more pictures in the show notes this week, craftlit.com slash 491. And Andrew and I used to go to the Brooklyn Museum of Art a lot, and we don't live there anymore, so we hadn't been in a long time. But it was really neat to get to go back and see what I remembered and things that have changed because they have new exhibits. One of the things that hadn't changed was they have some big stone, I guess they were probably friezes, and, I mean, they're huge. They've got to be eight feet tall. And they have cuneiform writing on them. And what's interesting is I remember learning in school that cuneiform worked really well because you'd make a a kind of damp clay tablet and then use a stylus that you could basically kind of poke into or punch into the wet or damp clay. and that's how you got your letters. That made sense because the stylus is kind of a, a wedge shape when you push the tip of it down into clay or something like that. The thing that was interesting is these are stone things, which means somebody had to carve little wedge-shaped shapes <laughs> over and over and over again in very specific patterns, some of them intersecting and crossing to make the letters. And all of a sudden it dawned on me, wow, that would be really, really hard. And aside from that moment of revelation, the other thing that was interesting was in the Egypt section, there was a a female mummy and the exhibit that they had, it was just a small room. The exhibit that they had was new and it was new because there'd been some new research done or it was a new look at some old research. It turns out that if you can read hieroglyphics, in burial chambers, you would come across a a male mummy and, you know, the burial chamber would say who he was and what he did and where he's going in his journey to the afterlife. and, And that was that. If it was a female mummy, at one point in the discussion of her journey through the afterlife, the pronoun would change. And suddenly the she would become a he. And then at some point she would pop back to being a she again. And this is, you know, the journey into the underworld. And what is it? Anubis, who's the god of the dead. The thing that was interesting about all of this was that for 
what, the hundred plus years that we've had access to understanding hieroglyphics? For that enormous span of time, the assumption had been that a mistake was made. You know, just carving the wrong pronoun into the wall of the tomb over and over again in every female mummy tomb. So apparently what happened is some women became archaeologists and were allowed into kind of taking a critical look at the scholarship that had been done. And finally, somebody started listening and the women said, you need to look back at some of the, the body of creation myths. And part of creation myth is birth, stories that we tell ourselves about birth in general. And one of the things that they believed was that it was the male who actually implanted a fetus into the woman instead of having two parts make the whole. It was the whole was put into the woman. She's the one who gestated and gave birth to the child. But you had to be male to start the process. Well, part of the journey to the underworld story is that you are reborn as part of your journey on the way to the afterlife. You can't be reborn if there's no male present and you're going it alone because it's just you dead in the tomb. So the woman had to, at some point, become male to continue the process of traveling on through this new part of life. And then when it was time to give birth, change back into being female, rebirth herself into the afterlife and boom, easy. You know, if you're dead and therefore now magical. It would be easy, evidently. The other thing, though, that was really kind of stunning, I guess, was that uh, the color red shows up in mummy tombs frequently. And you know how there, there are different layers. There's obviously the body in the middle, and then different layers of uh, linen, and then wooden casings, and it, you build out to the big sarcophagi that King Tut is famous for. There's a layer where the women's mummy cases all became red, and red is a male color. And then it went back to being the color that was used for women. And even with those two clues, the pronoun and the red case, completely didn't occur to anybody who was used to looking at physical artifacts. Didn't occur to any of them to go back and look at the mythology and the stories that people told to figure out what was going on and why you suddenly had this moment of cognitive dissonance, like, wow, pronoun changes. That's, that's kind of interesting. And so for me, it just reinforced how important it is for us to understand our stories. If we don't get the stories, we aren't going to get what we're about and where we come from. And, and I thought that was really cool. So if you have a chance to go to the Brooklyn Museum, it's huge now. And, uh, and there's parking in the back, and it's really pretty, and it's next to the botanical gardens. And if you go into the Egypt room, it is this one small room off to the side. So cool. Take your time and read the walls, because the details were fascinating. That was my little crafty thing, was like, <laughs> mummification? How cool. Not that I'm, you know, going to try it or anything like that right now. Just an interesting, cool story. In Anne of Green Gables news, we have a couple of voicemails. First, we have a comment from Tara, followed by a comment from Anne. Hello, Heather. It's Tara Worcester again. 
I'm preparing lemon butter chicken tonight and finishing up the latest episode of Craftlet, and I could not help but laugh at the remark made of Mrs. Lynn and her view on people she let borrow things. How she, how did she, how did she put it? A great many things returned to Mrs. Lynn, whom she had not expected to ever see again. <laughs> She lent all these things out, expecting them never to come back to her. Like, seriously? Yes, sure. You can borrow my very large quilt frame. I'll get it back from you eventually. With that deadpan resting face. Eventually. Sure, sure. You can borrow. Insert item here. Bring it back whenever you're finished with it. Internal monologue. Well, I'll never see that pan again. It it made me laugh so hard. Yes, yes, borrow my things. I'll never get them back from you. But I can guilt you with it until you do. <laughs> I am thoroughly enjoying Anne of Green Gables. I cannot believe she's been missing from my life for so long. Thank you so very much for introducing she and I. Hope you have a great night, Heather. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Hello, Heather. This is Anne Blanton, A.T. Blanton on Facebook, and Two Step on Ravelry and etc. Long time no talk. I was listening to the comments for the uh, this most recent episode at the beginning, and I have, I think, three things to say. I'm probably going to wander around before I get to them, but anyway. The first one was bluing. When my hair started turning gray, no, when my hair was three-quarters gray, my hairdresser asked me if I wanted to use the purple shampoo, and I said, what's the purple shampoo? And she says, well... It's a shampoo for gray hair and also hair that's been colored extremely light-colored blonde. And what it is is the bluing is actually a the blue and the yellow being complementary colors will cancel each other out. And that makes the – my hair is more silver than gray, I guess. Anyway, it makes the, the white more pure because all white has yellow in it in terms of uh, like paints and well just and hair you know i had very dark hair when i was a kid but as it turned gray it turned silver so anyway that's why they use the blue is because the light vibrations of the blue and the yellow cancel each other out and make the white more pure and she said it's not really she said blue hair ladies don't really have blue hair what happens is they use too much purple shampoo or bluing you can do it with just bluing and it gets in their scalp and it then you can sort of see it through your hair. So anyway, bluing. Let's check one off my list. The second one was sewing someone into clothes. Now I didn't know I don't know anything about the historical part of this, but I did find it interesting that I was watching one of my guilty pleasures, which is Criminal Minds, and the perpetrator was sewing women into costumes from the Merry Wives of Windsor. And that was part of his thing was that He'd sew them in so that the costume that was made for his tiny svelte mother would still would fit these women who weren't quite the same size. And he would sew them in from the back, and that was part of the that was part of the torture thing. So sewing in clothes. And the last one, oh, epicac, epicac. You know, I'm glad your other listener called in because I have been fretting about epicac ever since I heard that episode when I first got married. My mother-in-law, my new mother-in-law, told me, you know, that my husband had always had 
some GI issues. And when they got really bad, that I could give him Epicac. I had, the only time I'd ever heard of Epicac was in uh, an old John Wayne movie where they gave the drunken sheriff Epicac to uh, rid him of the alcohol in his system. And she said, now, if you can't get it, just go to, you know, if you won't be able to find it on the shelves, just go to your pharmacist and ask for it, and he'll take your name down so you don't ever get too much. And then she said, and if you can't find it, if your pharmacist won't get it to you, let me know, and I'll get some, I'll get bring you some the next time I'm down. Well, so I've been fretting about giving Epicac to babies that cough, and I feel much, much better now knowing that she, that Anne wasn't poisoning the babies. So anyway, as one of your, your listeners said, we love to learn at Craftlet, and I have been learning. So thank you very much. Okay, sewing the women into the dresses is now gross. <laughs> uh, somebody, somebody else must have seen some episode of something where somebody got a stomacher sewn onto their dress and just ran with it. Kind of creepy. But interesting about bluing and also Ipecac. I'm so glad we could set your, your poor heart at rest on that whole topic. I did get another bluing comment, this one by email from Angel. And Angel wrote, I wanted to reach out to you regarding the subject of bluing. I first heard of this when I was very young and read the book Ramona and Her Father by Beverly Cleary. Yay, Ramona! Ramona and her friend Howie built a boat and they want to sail it in the laundry tub. But in order to make it more realistic, Ramona decides to add bluing to the water and they both end up dyeing themselves blue. It was such a funny scene, I just thought I would share. And oh my gosh, that is the thing I haven't mentioned. You can still buy bluing. It's in a, strangely enough, bright blue bottle usually. I think it's grandma's bluing. It's got like a line drawing of an older, sweet-faced woman. And that stuff is like hardcore blue. It's the, the liquid when it comes out is so dark blue. It doesn't match the bottle at all. But when you put drops of it, and I mean drop, maybe two of the drops part, uh, when you put it into water, it obviously dissolves and disperses and the color gets a little bit lighter but it's still a hardcore blue dye really so if you just put bluing into the wash tub not only would you probably dye yourself blue but there's a good chance that that tub's not going to not be blue for a while i must have stopped reading the ramona books before ramona and her father but thank you angel for for sharing that and our final comment also comes from tara and Tara, I have an answer for you at the end. Hello, Heather. It's Tara Worcester again. I have been lax in my comedy as of late with the onslaught of summer vacation. My tiny humans are in my house. They have thoroughly invaded. Everything smells like feet. Anywho, I was cooking chicken curry and listening to one of the recent episodes where Anne's friend turns her hair up halfway in a pompadour, and it sparked a comment for me in regards to Little Women. In the beginning of Little Women, one of the sisters makes a comment about Joe's boyish behavior. But you turn your hair up and look so much older now. And Joe snatches off her neck, and her hair comes flying down, and she proclaims, well, then I will wear it in two tails till I'm 20 because Joe did not want to be ladylike. 
and that was one of those symbols of maturity is learning how to properly tend to and turn up your hair in a net so that, or a snood, it's called a snood, so that you actually look like you were put together and well-bred and knowledgeable on the finities of being a lady. As I say it, as I do a tiny curtsy in my blue jeans and baggy shirt. That was a comment that uh, sparked for me was, ah, ah, two tails to one twenty, ha, 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 ha. But I thought that was an interesting correlation because I think, I do believe that these were published around about the same time. If I'm mistaken, I'm sorry. But it was one of those, ha, 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 yay, classic book correlations. You've got to love them, and you've got to love Craftlet. I hope you're having a great day. I'll talk to you soon. So it doesn't surprise me at all that Little Women has that reference in it. But Little Women was written between 1868 and 1869. It was, I think, written uh, over the course of several months, and then it was published in two volumes in those years. So not super close to 1908, but I think the important part is, I think this habit of young girls wearing their hair down and older girls wearing their hair up uh, goes back a long ways. Long, long ways. So cool. See? And we all learned even more today. Yay! All right. Chapters 23 and 24. That's where we're going today. And there's not a lot of huge big stuff. We've had a couple of weeks, which surprised me with the amount of information that uh, I thought might be helpful. This week, skim milk, something that we can buy very easily in the grocery store now. Back then, the skim milk would be the milk remnants after having made, uh, skimming off the cream and then making butter. So it would be kind of vaguely white water. And humans didn't like drinking it. It was pretty tasteless and eh. But it still had some protein in it, so they would give it to farm animals. So it's, it's not skim milk the way you think of skim milk. There's very little milk going on in there. You'll hear a, a line and this, I know this happens frequently in this particular book because Lucy Maud Montgomery is a genius about it. She'll drop in lines from Shakespeare, from the Bible, from poetry that clearly sound like they are lines that have been dropped in from Shakespeare or poetry. And we have several of them in today's chapter. The first is having the fear of mother before her eyes. And what this refers back to is an, the older traditional text that was read out at a, a criminal procedure. So the accused, they would say of the accused, that he did willfully and not having the fear of God before his eyes do, you know, whatever bad thing he did. So in this case, you'll hear having the fear of mother before her eyes. I thought that was very funny. So keep your ears open for that. A ridge pole on a rooftop is the point of a peaked roof that would go along the entire length of the roof. So it's the, if you think of, of shingles and things like that, where shingles would meet at the top, that would be a great place for water to get in. So instead of allowing water to get in between those shingles where they meet at the top of the peaked roof, there's a ridge pole, which would be like a well, let's go back to the gingerbread house analogy that we used for flying buttresses. <laughs> if you made a gingerbread house with a peaked roof, you could do 
a couple of different things. You could lay down a layer of frosting, you know, along the, the seam where the, the two sides of the roof come together and hope that that would be strong enough to keep out the gumdrop rain, I guess. And you could also put down that layer of frosting and maybe put peppermint stick on top of it. So the water would run off the peppermint stick and then down onto the shingles. Even better would be if you took a non-candy tool, like an index card, and you folded it in half so that it would stand up on its own little triangular shape. And you'd put that on top of that part of the roof so that water couldn't even get close to where the shingles came into contact with each other. You could still use frosting, but it would be pretty gross on an index card. Anyway, the ridge pole would be that piece that hides the intersection of where the, the shingles come together at the top of a peaked roof. There are several texts that are referred to in today's chapters, and Kim and I are working on getting the text ready for you. One of them is a piece by Oliver Wendell Holmes, who I liked so much during our Christmas texts this last year, called The Morning Visit. Another one is Mary Queen of Scots that was written by Henry Glassford Bell. And then there's a scene called The Society for the Prevention of Gossip. And if I can get enough people together, I won't be able to do it for this week, but if I can get enough people together, I will try and record this with you as a and, and get it out for you as a one-off because it's kind of funny and kind of crazy hard to find. So, so yeah, I thought that would be fun. So fingers crossed that I can get eight voices that will work to do this text for you. Listen, keep your ears open for the descriptions of the newfangled classes that this new young female teacher is presenting to the children. It will sound a little bit more modern, actually, I think. You will hear a reference to a line from As You Like It, and the original line comes from Act 2, Scene 7, and the line is, the full line is, and when the whining schoolboy with his satchel and shining morning face creeping like a snail, unwillingly to school. That's it. So you will, you will hear something and go, oh, that's what it's from. Now you know. I mentioned before that there was a reference to a poem about Mary, Queen of Scots. Uh, that's one of the texts that Kim is working on for you. It is quite a text. So uh, bravo to Kim for even considering taking it on. But it's, it felt a lot more modern at the end than I had expected it to. And you know, I always find that interesting in, in anything from the 1800s or the early turn of the last century, when, um, when texts come across as feeling very current. I think it's just, it's really interesting to see how little we've changed. You'll hear a reference to going after crow's nests. And I cannot tell you how many times I reread this trying to figure out what this had to do with a pirate ship and a crow's nest. And the answer is nothing. It has nothing to do with that kind of crow's nest. It is literally climbing a tree to get a nest that was built by crows and then bring it down to the ground. So that's the crow's nest. The Canadian Confederation that happened in 1867 started the uh, trend for finding a Canadian flag. And you're going to hear references to flags in today's chapter, or second chapter today. And I think the, the Canadian flag didn't change again until, I think it was 1892 to 1922 or 27, 
was the the last iteration before the the current one. So, you know, it was a it was a big topic of discussion. You have your big provinces, and then you have Britain, and trying to figure out how to display on a flag your unified presence in North America, plus your connection to Britain, that was going to be a complicated flag. So it it was a process. Tableau vivant means living picture. We've talked about this before. We've come across this in a couple of other stories where people would get together and take, for example, an allegorical scene, like the, you know, the seven deadly sins or something. And so seven people would portray one of the sins, which would be kind of hilarious. And then they are revealed. A curtain is drawn aside or lights are turned on or something. But they all are frozen in position. Kind of like a scene from The Matrix. Everything else is moving around them, but not them. So that's that's a tableau vivant. And that comes up in today's second chapter as well. And finally, along with the tableau vivant, you will hear a reference to an organ being played. Czar, this is not the kind of organ that you would expect to see, you know, in a church or something like that today. It was probably something called a harmonium, which was a metallically reeded instrument. So instead of a reed, you know, that was plant-based or bamboo, bamboo is a plant, plant-based like bamboo, you would have a, an instrument where the reeds were made of metal. And in order to get air to flow through the reeds, you had a bellows. And to get the bellows to work, you would have to be pumping your feet like a crazy person on pedals. I get the sense that it would be quite a workout to play a harmonium. So kudos to anyone who pulled that off. All right, let's listen to chapter 23 and 24 of Anne of Green Gables by Lucy Maud Montgomery, read for us by Kim Zucker. Anne of Green Gables by Lucy Maud Montgomery, read by Kim Zuckert. Chapter 23, Anne Comes to Grief in an Affair of Honor. Anne had to live through more than two weeks, as it happened, almost a month having elapsed since the liniment cake episode. It was high time for her to get into fresh trouble of some sort. Little mistakes, such as absent-mindedly emptying a pan of skim milk into a basket of yarn balls in the pantry instead of into the pig's bucket, and walking clean over the edge of the log bridge into the brook while wrapped in imaginative reverie, not really being worth counting. A week after the tea at the manse, Diana Barry gave a party. "'Small and select,' Anne assured Marilla. "'Just the girls in our class.' They had a very good time, and nothing untoward happened until after tea, when they found themselves in the Barry garden, a little tired of all their games and ripe for any enticing form of mischief which might present itself. This presently took the form of daring. Daring was the fashionable amusement among the Avonlea small fry just then. It had begun among the boys, but soon spread to the girls, and all the silly things that were done in Avonlea that summer, because the doers thereof were dared to do them, would fill a book by themselves. First of all, Carrie Sloane dared Ruby Gillis to climb to a certain point in the huge old willow tree before the front door, which Ruby Gillis, albeit in mortal dread of the fat green caterpillars with which said tree was infested, and with the fear of her mother before her eyes if she should tear her new muslin dress, nimbly did, to the discomfiture of the aforesaid Carrie Sloane. 
Then Josie Pye dared Jane Andrews to hop on her left leg around the garden without stopping once or putting her right foot to the ground, which Jane Andrews gamely tried to do, but gave out at the third corner and had to confess herself defeated. Josie's triumph being rather more pronounced than good taste permitted, Anne Shirley dared her to walk along the top of the board fence which bounded the garden to the east. Now, to walk board fences requires more skill and steadiness of head and heel than one might suppose who has never tried it. But Josie Pye, if deficient in some qualities that make for popularity, had at least a natural and inborn gift, duly cultivated, for walking board fences. Josie walked the barry fence with an airy unconcern which seemed to imply that a little thing like that wasn't worth a dare. Reluctant admiration greeted her exploit, for most of the other girls could appreciate it, having suffered many things themselves in their efforts to walk fences. Jody descended from her perch, flushed with victory, and darted a defiant glance at Anne. Anne tossed her red braids. "'I don't think it's such a very wonderful thing to walk a little low-board fence,' she said. "'I knew a girl in Marysville who could walk the ridgepole of a roof.' "'I don't believe it,' said Josie flatly. "'I don't believe anybody could walk a ridgepole. You couldn't, anyhow.' "'Couldn't I?' cried Anne, rashly. "'Then I dare you to do it,' said Josie defiantly. "'I dare you to climb up there and walk the ridgepole of Mr. Barry's kitchen roof.' Anne turned pale. But there was clearly only one thing to be done. She walked toward the house where a ladder was leaning against the kitchen roof. All the fifth-class girls said, "'Oh!' partly in excitement, partly in dismay. "'Don't you do it, Anne?' entreated Diana. "'You'll fall off and be killed. Never mind, Josie Pye. It isn't fair to dare anybody to do anything so dangerous.' "'I must do it. My honor is at stake,' said Anne solemnly. "'I shall walk that ridgepole, Diana, or perish in the attempt. If I am killed, you are to have my pearl bead ring.' Anne climbed the ladder amid breathless silence, gained the ridgepole, balanced herself uprightly on that precarious footing, and started to walk along it, dizzily conscious that she was uncomfortably high up in the world, and that walking ridgepoles was not a thing in which your imagination helped you out much. Nevertheless, she managed to take several steps before the catastrophe came. Then she swayed, lost her balance, stumbled, staggered, and fell, sliding down over the sun-baked roof and crashing off it through the tangle of Virginia creeper beneath, all before the dismayed circle below could give a simultaneous, terrified shriek. If Anne had tumbled off the roof on the side up which she had ascended, Diana would probably have fallen heir to the pearl bead ring then and there. Fortunately, she fell on the other side, where the roof extended down over the porch so nearly to the ground that a fall therefrom was a much less serious thing. Nevertheless, when Diana and the other girls had rushed frantically around the house, except Ruby Gillis, who remained as if rooted to the ground and went into hysterics, they found Anne lying all white and limp among the wreck and ruin of the Virginia Creeper. "'Anne, are you killed?' shrieked Diana, throwing herself on her knees beside her friend. "'Oh, Anne, dear Anne, speak just one word to me and tell me if you're killed!' To the immense relief of all the girls— and especially of Josie Pye, 
who in spite of lack of imagination had been seized with horrible visions of a future branded as the girl who was the cause of Anne Shirley's early and tragic death. Anne sat dizzily up and answered uncertainly, "'No, Diana, I am not killed, but I think I am rendered unconscious.' "'Where?' sobbed Carrie Sloane. "'Oh, where, Anne?' Before Anne could answer, Mrs. Barry appeared on the scene. At sight of her, Anne tried to scramble to her feet, but sank back again with a sharp little cry of pain. "'What's the matter? Where have you hurt yourself?' demanded Mrs. Barry. "'My ankle,' gasped Anne. "'Oh, Diana, please find your father and ask him to take me home. I know I can never walk there, and I'm sure I couldn't hop so far on one foot when Jane couldn't even hop around the garden.' Marilla was out in the orchard picking a panful of summer apples when she saw Mr. Barry coming over the log bridge and up the slope, with Mrs. Barry beside him and a whole procession of little girls trailing after him. In his arms he carried Anne, whose head lay limply against his shoulder. At that moment Marilla had a revelation. In the sudden stab of fear that pierced her very heart, she realized what Anne had come to mean to her. She would have admitted that she liked Anne, nay, that she was very fond of Anne. But now she knew, as she hurried wildly down the slope, that Anne was dearer to her than anything else on earth. "'Mr. Barry, what has happened to her?' she gasped, more white and shaken than the self-contained, sensible Marilla had been for many years. Anne herself answered, lifting her head. "'Don't be very frightened, Marilla. I was walking the ridgepole, and I fell off.' I expect I've sprained my ankle, but, Marilla, I might have broken my neck. Let us look on the bright side of things. I might have known you'd go and do something of that sort when I let you go to that party, said Marilla, sharp and shrewish in her very relief. Bring her in here, Mr. Barry, and lay her on the sofa. Mercy me, the child has gone and fainted. It was quite true. Overcome by the pain of her injury, Anne had one more of her wishes granted to her. She had fainted dead away. Matthew, hastily summoned from the harvest field, was straightway dispatched for the doctor, who in due time came to discover that the injury was more serious than they had supposed. Anne's ankle was broken. That night, when Marilla went up to the east gable, where a white-faced girl was lying, a plaintive voice greeted her from the bed. "'Aren't you very sorry for me, Marilla?' "'It was your own fault,' said Marilla, twitching down the blind and lighting a lamp twitching down the blind and lighting a lamp. "'And that's just why you should be sorry for me,' said Anne, "'because the thought that it is all my own fault is what makes it so hard. "'If I could blame it on anybody, I would feel so much better. "'But what would you have done, Marilla, if you had been dared to walk a ridgepole?' "'I'd have stayed on good firm ground and let them dare away. "'Such absurdity,' said Marilla. Anne sighed. "'But you have such strength of mind, Marilla.' I haven't. I just felt that I couldn't bear Josie Pye's scorn. She would have crowed over me all my life. And I think I've been punished so much that you needn't be very cross with me, Marilla. It's not a bit nice to faint after all. And the doctor hurt me dreadfully when he was setting my ankle. I won't be able to go around for six or seven weeks, and I'll miss the new lady teacher. She won't be new any more by the time I'm able to go to school. And Gil everybody will get ahead of me in class. Oh, I am an afflicted mortal. 
but I'll try to bear it all bravely if only you won't be cross with me, Marilla. There, there. I'm not cross, said Marilla. You're an unlucky child, there's no doubt about that, but as you say, you'll have the suffering of it. Here now, try and eat some supper. Isn't it fortunate I've got such an imagination, said Anne. It will help me through splendidly, I expect. What do people who haven't any imagination do when they break their bones, do you suppose, Marilla? Anne had good reason to bless her imagination many a time and oft during the tedious seven weeks that followed. But she was not solely dependent on it. She had many visitors, and not a day passed without one or more of the schoolgirls dropping in to bring her flowers and books and tell her all the happenings in the juvenile world of Avonlea. "'Everybody has been so good and kind, Marilla,' sighed Anne happily, on the day when she could first limp across the floor. "'It isn't very pleasant to be laid up, but there's a bright side to it, Marilla. You find out how many friends you have. Why, even Superintendent Bell came to see me, and he is really a very fine man. Not a kindred spirit, of course, but still I like him, and I'm awfully sorry I ever criticized his prayers. I believe now he really does mean them, only he's gotten the habit of saying them as if he didn't. He could get over that if he take a little trouble. I gave him a good broad hint. I told him how hard I tried to make my own little private prayers interesting. He told me all about the time he broke his ankle when he was a boy. It does seem so strange to think of Superintendent Bell ever being a boy. Even my imagination has its limits, for I can't imagine that. When I try to imagine him as a boy, I see him with gray whiskers and spectacles, just as he looks in Sunday school, only small. Now, it's so easy to imagine Mrs. Allen as a little girl. Mrs. Allen has been to see me fourteen times. Isn't that something to be proud of, Marilla, when a minister's wife has so many claims on her time? She's such a cheerful person to have visit you, too. She never tells you it's your own fault, and she hopes you'll be a better girl on account of it. Mrs. Lynde always told me that when she came to see me, and she said it in a kind of way that made me feel she might hope I'd be a better girl, but she didn't really believe I would. Even Josie Pye came to see me. I received her as politely as I could because I think she was sorry she dared me to walk a ridgepole. If I'd been killed, she would have had to carry a dark burden of remorse all her life. Diana has been a faithful friend. She's been over every day to cheer my lonely pillow. But, oh, I shall be so glad when I can go to school, for I've heard such exciting things about the new teacher. The girls all think she's perfectly sweet. Diana says she has the loveliest fair curly hair and such fascinating eyes. She dresses beautifully, and her sleeve puffs are bigger than anyone else's in Avonlea. Every other Friday afternoon she has recitations, and everybody has to say a piece or take part in a dialogue. Oh, it's just glorious to think of it. Josie Pye says she hates it, that is just because Josie has so little imagination. Diana and Ruby Gillis and Jane Andrews are preparing a dialogue called A Morning Visit for next Friday. And the Friday afternoons they don't have recitations. Miss Stacy takes them all to the woods for a field day, and they study ferns and flowers and birds. And they have physical culture exercises every morning and evening. Mrs. Lynch said she never heard such goings on, and it all comes of having a lady teacher. But I think it must be splendid. And I believe I shall find that Miss Stacy is a kindred spirit. There's one thing plain to be seen, Anne, said Marilla, and that is that your fall off the berry's roof hasn't injured your tongue at all. End of chapter 23 Chapter 24 Miss Stacy and her pupils get up a concert It was October again when Anne was ready to go back to school. 
a glorious October, all red and gold, with mellow mornings when the valleys were filled with delicate mists as if the spirit of autumn had poured them in for the sun to drain, amethyst, pearl, silver, rose, and smoke blue. The dews were so heavy that the fields glistened like cloth of silver, and there were such heaps of rustling leaves in the hollows of many-stemmed woods to run crisply through. The birch path was a canopy of yellow, and the ferns were sere and brown all along it. There was a tang in the very air that inspired the hearts of small maidens, tripping, unlike snails, swiftly and willingly to school. And it was jolly to be back again at the little brown desk beside Diana, with Ruby Gillis nodding across the aisle, and Carrie Sloan sending up notes and Julia Bell passing a chew of gum down from the back seat. Andrew a long breath of happiness as she sharpened her pencil and arranged her picture cards in her desk. Life was certainly very interesting. In the new teacher, she found another true and helpful friend. Miss Stacy was a bright, sympathetic young woman with the happy gift of winning and holding the affection of her pupils and bringing out the best that was in them mentally and morally. Anne expanded like a flower under this wholesome influence and carried home to the admiring Matthew and the critical Marilla glowing accounts of schoolwork and aims. I love Miss Stacy with my whole heart, Marilla. She's so ladylike, and she has such a sweet voice. When she pronounces my name, I feel instinctively that she's spelling it with an E. We had recitations this afternoon. I just wish you could have been there to hear me recite Mary, Queen of Scots. I put my whole soul into it. Ruby Gillis told me coming home that the way I said the line, Now for my father's arm, she said, My woman's heart farewell, just made her blood run cold. Well, now, you might recite it for me some of these days out in the barn, suggested Matthew. Of course I will, said Anne, meditatively. But I won't be able to do it so well, I know. It won't be so exciting as it is when you have a whole schoolful before you hanging breathlessly on your words. I know I won't be able to make your blood run cold. Mrs. Lynde said it made her blood run cold to see the boys climbing to the very tops of those big trees on Bell's Hill after Crow's Nest last Friday, said Marilla. I wonder at Miss Stacy for encouraging it. But we wanted a Crow's Nest for nature study explained Anne. That was on our field afternoon. Field afternoons are splendid, Marilla, and Miss Stacy explains everything so beautifully. We have to write compositions on our field afternoons, and I write the best ones. It's very vain of you to say so, then. You better let your teacher say it. But she did say it, Marilla, and indeed I'm not vain about it. How can I be when I'm such a dunce at geometry? Although I'm really beginning to see through it a little, too. Miss Stacy makes it so clear. Still, I'll never be good at it, and I assure you it is a humbling reflection, but I love writing compositions. Mostly Miss Stacy lets us choose our own subjects, but next week we are to write a composition on some remarkable person. It's hard to choose among so many remarkable people who have lived. Mustn't it be splendid to be remarkable and have compositions written about you after you're dead? Oh, I would dearly love to be remarkable. I think when I grow up I'll be a trained nurse and go with the Red Crosses to the field of battle as a messenger of mercy. That is, if I don't go out as a foreign missionary. That'd be very romantic, but one would have to be very good to be a missionary, and that would be a stumbling block. We have physical culture exercises every day. They make you graceful and promote digestion. Promote fiddlesticks, 
said Morella, who honestly thought it was all nonsense. But all the field afternoons and recitation Fridays and physical culture contortions paled before a project which Miss Stacy brought forward in November. This was that the scholars of Avonlea School should get up a concert and hold it in the hall on Christmas night for the laudable purpose of helping to pay for a schoolhouse flag. The pupils one and all, taking graciously to this plan, the preparations for a program were begun at once. And of all the excited performers-elect, none was so excited as Anne Shirley, who threw herself into the undertaking heart and soul, hampered as she was by Marilla's disapproval. Marilla thought it all rank foolishness. "'It's just filling your heads up with nonsense and taking time that ought to be put on your lessons,' she grumbled. "'I don't approve of children's getting up concerts and racing about to practices. It makes them vain and forward and fond of gadding.' "'But think of the worthy object,' pleaded Anne. "'A flag will cultivate a spirit of patriotism, Marilla.' "'Fudge! There's precious little patriotism in the thoughts of any of you. All you want is a good time.' "'Well, when you can combine patriotism and fun, isn't it all right? "'Of course it's real nice to be getting up a concert. "'We're going to have six choruses, and Diana is to sing a solo. "'I am in two dialogues, the Society for the Suppression of Gossip and the Fairy Queen. "'The boys are going to have a dialogue, too, "'and I'm to have two recitations, Marilla. "'I just tremble when I think of it, but it's a nice, thrilly kind of tremble, "'and we're to have a tableau at the last, Faith, Hope, and Charity. "'Diana and Ruby and I are to be in it, all draped in white with flowing hair, I am to be hope with my hands clasped so and my eyes uplifted. I'm going to practice my recitations in the garret. Don't be alarmed if you hear me groaning. I have to groan heartrendingly in one of them, and it's really hard to get up a good artistic groan, Marilla. Josie Pye is sulky because she didn't get the part she wanted in the dialogue. She wanted to be the fairy queen. That would have been ridiculous, for whoever heard of a fairy queen as fat as Josie? Fairy queens must be slender. Jane Andrews is to be the queen, and I'm to be one of her maids of honor. Josie says she thinks a red-headed fairy is just as ridiculous as a fat one, but I do not let myself mind what Josie says. I am to have a wreath of white roses on my hair, and Ruby Gillis is going to lend me her slippers because I haven't any of my own. It's necessary for fairies to have slippers, you know. You couldn't imagine a fairy wearing boots, could you? Especially with copper toes. We're going to decorate the hall with creeping spruce and fur mottos with pink tissue paper roses in them. And we're all to march in two by two after the audience is seated while Emma White plays a march on the organ. Oh, Marilla, I know you're not so enthusiastic about it as I am, but don't you hope your little Anne will distinguish herself? All I hope is that you'll behave yourself. I'll be heartily glad when this fuss is over and you'll be able to settle down. You are simply good for nothing now with your head stuffed full of dialogues and groans and tableaus. As for your tongue, it's a marvel it's not clean worn out. Anne sighed and betook herself to the backyard, over which a young new moon was shining through the leafless poplar boughs from an apple-green western sky, and where Matthew was splitting wood. Anne perched herself on a block and talked the concert over with him, sure of an appreciative and sympathetic listener, in this instance at least. "'Well, now I reckon it's going to be a pretty good concert, and I expect you'll do your part fine,' he said, smiling down into her eager, vivacious little face. Anne smiled back at him. Those two were the best of friends, and Matthew thanked his stars many a time and oft that he had nothing to do with bringing her up. That was Marilla's exclusive duty, 
If it had been his, he would have been worried over frequent conflicts between inclination and said duty. As it was, he was free to spoil Anne, Marilla's phrasing, as much as he liked. But it was not such a bad arrangement after all. A little appreciation sometimes does quite as much good as all the conscientious bringing up in the world. End of chapter 24. Okay, first off, Josie Pye is on my list. I just don't like her anymore. <laughs> I was trying to be nice, but now, no, no. Although Anne, you know, didn't help herself any. But Marilla's response to seeing Anne being carried towards the house in Mr. Barry's arms, that was awesome and huge. And it was so classic that by the time Anne is starting to get better, Marilla's just given her flack for having been lame enough to take a dare. Oh, the taking a dare thing, by the way, if you take a dare, it's that you own the dare, like you will take on the burden of having not done the dare. To dispel a dare would be to actually perform the task that you were dared to. So Anne got herself out from under the burden of a dare, an untaken dare, by, by walking the ridgepole. But I loved when Anne was recuperating and Marilla was saying, why were you so lame? And Anne's whole, don't you feel sorry for me? And Marilla's saying, you know, it was your own fault. Yes, and that's why you should feel sorry for me. If I could blame someone else, it would be so much better, but I can't. And it was all me. And doesn't that just make, break your heart? I thought, wow, okay, even I wouldn't have gone there when I was a kid. That's pretty impressive. I like that a lot. By the way, there are several sections in today's chapters where Anne speaks a brick of text. The end of chapter 23, it's got to be two plus pages worth of Anne monologuing. There's no indents. There are no, there are no breaks in it at all. She is just rolling along. It starts with Everybody has been so good and kind, Marilla, sighed Anne happily on the day when she could first limp across the floor. From that point until the end of the chapter, she's just like, talking, 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 talking. Happy, recovering, and chatty. All right, you have a good one. I will talk to you soon. Have a great week. Take care of yourself and each other. Have a great one. A big thanks to all the Craftlit listeners who support the show by being a premium audio member via craftlit.com slash premium or via patreon.com slash craftlit. Your support for the show is what's kept us going since 2006. If you feel like getting free audio pretty much every week, please consider supporting the show by heading over to patreon.com slash craftlit and pledging what you feel the show is worth to you. If you can't support the show that way, consider leaving a review at iTunes or at our facebook.com slash craftlet page or follow at craftlet on Twitter and share the show with your followers too. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. <laughs>